Welcome everyone to the Reptile Room Podcast. I am your host, Riley Jimison. Again, Andy is running around, hiding in the background, playing super tech support dude. So he is not with us tonight. Um, so send him all of your hate mail and angry messages at uh, areareptiles at gmail.com and you can tell him how much of a disappointment he is. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that to him. He's wonderful and he helps this show survive. I'm just teasing him. And so... By the sound of that laugh in the background, it's a very distinct voice, and and I'm sure uh, some of my listeners are, um, you know, duplicate listeners to the one and only Morelia Python Radio. So this week we're joined none other by the youthful and arguably wittier side of and NPR, taller, I might add, and, and taller. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the the OMAC special with Owen McIntyre, Rogue Reptiles. So um, we're we're taking you from the interview seat and putting you in the hot seat, and and we're gonna flip this script on you. I know you've done it before. Uh, it has, uh, and I've yet to be like everybody thinks they got me, especially those reptile and chill guys. But like nobody has yet to you know get me like what 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 secret dark what dark secrets do you want to know about npr i'll tell you everything so you know it's uh... yeah well i would say that uh you are on another witty level than the than those guys over at <laughs> reptile and chill so if they think they've got that crown they better uh stay in school because yeah i mean we'll you see. own that one they're larger than i am and you know could probably bend me in half so we'll just let them have whatever they want so well they got to get across the pond first, don't they? That is true. That is the only thing that saves me <laughs> on a lot of these things. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't I don't actually want to do the whole how'd you get your start in reptiles and thing, because you've done that a million times and you run your own podcast. So if people are listening to me, they've definitely heard They've heard, heard you. me tell the story a million times. Like, it doesn't get any better. Like, yeah. it's, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so We're going we're gonna to skip right over that, and we're just going to go into uh, – into whatever like so how are things you know before we started recording <laughs> you were you were telling me about what's going on so what what have you got going on over there uh, i got olive pythons coming out of eggs over here which is the Woo-hoo. first time i actually got the hold the first olive python i have ever produced in my hand this morning as he uh he because i i know um because i checked um as he came out of the egg so uh that was cool and this is this is a I think I got uh, my first pair of olives in 2000. Uh, they were 2010s, something like that. Okay. It's been a 10-year project at this point where um, I've been trying to work on this one. And to finally like get the damn egg in your hand in the beginning of this season, I'm like, all right, step one. And then you yep. get the baby. You're like, holy crap, cool, step two. So it's, it, it's, it's cool. And, um, you know, this has been a year of – kind of firsts for me like you know it on the surface i've had a really good season but i have had my gut punches you know um if everything had gone according to plan i would have had this would have been my first year for Kribo. um this would have been my first year for ruffies this would have been my first year for olives and for rhino rats um unfortunately the ruffies and the Kribo clutches both went down but i still got the olives and the rhinos so it's still a good year in my opinion, but you know, I, I think it always could be better. I think if you're a reptile breeder and you're like, well, that's it. I've peaked, just get out of it. But you know, it's all, there's always room for improvement. 
So yeah, I, I think I agree with you a hundred percent. There, it's like no matter what, the glass is always half full, and there's always mm-hmm. more more to to achieve and improve upon for sure. But definitely, huge congrats getting those olives. Now, thanks. You said something that's really I think uh, overlooked, and you said it's a ten year project. Olives yeah. are are they're not one of those species that comes to maturity in five years even. No, I mean my um, I think my uh, youngest pair is about six or seven years old, and then my older pair is ten. Now, with with carpets, you can sort of see a physical maturity when they cross a line, where they're like they got that big boofy head and yeah. sort of like a mature body yeah. build that's very different from their juvenile upbringings. Do olives do that? No, because they have the same kind of damn head that they've had their entire lives. Like the babies coming out of the eggs have like the same slim snout and large head and i'm like son of a bitch like there's no way yeah. to tell so they just, it, they just get bigger they just get bigger and that's where i think a lot of the problems come in is that people don't wait as long number one number two they get fat because olive pythons do not need to be fed like burmese and retics if they do they'll get the fat rolls like i i moved my guys onto um guinea pigs and i could not get them to breed the first time it was time for breeding and they were just massive. They were huge. So I've actually bumped them down to uh, uh, XL rats and quail. And they've lost a ton of weight, but they don't look like horrible by any means. And the male that actually produced the babies this year is my slimmer of my two boys. So, yeah, they're they're a long-bodied snake, but they're a slim-bodied snake. You know, they're not supposed to be these tanks that we make berms, retics, and other large constrictors up to be. Um, so, and then the other thing is I don't think people get them cold enough because I was re I was watching, um, K brothers, uh, in Australia, they, they breed a ton of olive pythons and blackheads and other things like that. I was watching their videos and they were going through how they breed their olive pythons. And I they're like, oh, to get it down to like 15 degrees Celsius. And I'm like, what the hell is that conversion? And I'm like, doing it and i think it was like almost close to 50 degrees or something like that at certain nights but they only do it for like one week and then they just bring them back up so i'm like all right so i was very mean to my olives this year and i got eggs (laughs) it's like i didn't i didn't feed them as much as i did i i dropped them down cold and i got eggs so yeah wow 15 degrees Celsius is 59 degrees Fahrenheit. There we go. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's what they said. They said uh, 15 degrees. So you're looking at 60 degrees, which, you know, I don't – that's like bread light temps to me. Right. You know, carpets breed. You drop them down to 70, maybe dip into the high 60s, and that's it. All your carpets will breed with that. Coastals, jungles, apparently IJs. I don't know. I've been told. Um, (laughs) But then other species, diamonds, inlands, bread lie, have to get colder. And I think that olives are right in that mix, too. They need the colder drop. And I know people are going to be like, but they're from Northern Territory. It's like 110 degrees. I'm like, yes, at the daytime, it is 100-something degrees. But during the rain season, at night, it will get cold. Right. Cold enough. So, And also, these animals don't hang out in 110 degrees. They they don't want to be there. They'll They'll pop out, warm up. As the sun is rising at like 80 something, and then they'll go find a log or a lagoon or 
some sort of deep rock crevice to hang out at maybe high seventies mm-hmm. for the day. So yeah. Yeah. If you think about just how, how thermals sort of work from day to night as if like the peak heat of the day is like four or five o'clock and it's only getting into like eighties, that means it's going to drop considerably by, you know, right before sunup at the mm-hmm. coldest time when the pressure fronts totally change. So for at least a short amount of time, those animals are definitely, you know, running and sheltering from probably like 40, 50 degrees outside. And what they're experiencing is like a slightly warmer microclimate in a cut in a cave or a tree or wherever that's only getting up to a few degrees warmer where it's like 50s, 60s maybe. And then they get, you know, again, repeat day access to something in the 70s and 80s as opposed to their summertime where it's just so freaking hot. They're lucky to get down into the 80s sort of a deal. So Yeah, I mean, and the the weird thing about Australia is that like we would be near a, a creek that was covered in overgrowth and it was 70 degrees. And then we would leave the trees in the overgrowth and it'd be like 98 like it would just wow. be and that's just the way it was and also when we were driving around australia the most stuff we found during the day was either stuff had been hit by a car or um it was a monitor that was moving across the street that was running from one shaded spot to another yeah. and that was it like we didn't see the snakes and stuff until either the sun started going down or if there was a downpour of rain, because then everything cooled off. And then I saw the same thing when I was herping in Florida uh, about a week ago. There was nothing. We got a huge downpour of rain that lasted maybe about a minute. And then everything was alive. There were there were rattlesnakes everywhere. There were gopher tortoises everywhere. Then it rained again, and it was like somebody flipped the switch. Everything was gone again. So wow. it's, it, it, you know, these animals... You know, the the constant thing we're told is that you need to keep the hot spot at like 90-something, cold spot at 72. It's like maybe, you know, it doesn't need to be that hot. And it doesn't need to be, you know, you don't need, like I've stopped caring about what temperature my cold spot is. You know, let it do whatever it does. The animals will take care of themselves. Now, also with these night drops that we're supposed to be giving, like I've, I've set my computer systems to... Uh, peak at temperature at the high point at noon and then go down to about a nighttime drop temperature of, you know, we'll say like high seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that the thing is that, you know, my house is, it's summertime, you know, I, I, I know the computer system set to allow the cages to go to 70 something degrees, but it's not because the house is not that cold. So you know, they're, they're, they're getting it. They're getting the temperature fluctuations, but the weather outside is preventing the cages from dropping below a temp that maybe they would not experience until wintertime showed up. So yeah, there's a lot of ways to do this, but I think we, we can, I think we cling on to the myths and stories that we were told when we were first getting into it of how to keep certain animals. And we don't kind of realize that even when we see them in the wild or even when we have experience where it's like, maybe that's not the best, you know? Yeah. I keep toying with the idea of keeping my team more pythons at room temperature because I keep being told that people have had success that way. I just can't do it, but I'm getting closer <laughs> every day. <Yeah>. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, that's another species that like seems to do best when 
they're more mature and older mm-hmm. as far as breeding goes. It seems like people aren't really having success with animals under seven or eight years old with that species, much yeah. like your olives. So, and they're another um, species that it, it they get big and mm-hmm. oh, you yeah. can very easily overfeed them. I mean, uh, my team wars are massive and I do not feed them as much as you think I do. Same thing with white lips. You know, the, they're animals that don't need to be as big as people constantly get them to. It's just that, you know, they'll always be hungry because they don't know when the next rat's going to come. So you have to learn to sure. ignore them when you're feeding everybody else. So, yeah. And that's another really excellent point to bring up for just anybody looking at species. Like if you're looking at a species that is, you know, very rarely bred in captivity, typically the animals that are available are pretty close to their their wild counterparts. So that survival instinct is, you know, full throttle all the time mm-hmm. on species like that. Whereas you get animals that have been bred so much in captivity, you could argue their domestication exists in species like ball pythons or bearded dragons and things like that. And they don't have that drive to constantly eat everything available because they don't know if that, you know, there's going to be a meal, you know, next. So that's why you get animals that get picky or lazy or go on feed strikes and in, in a lot of those species. But with these animals, they, they have a one hell of a feeding response. And if they're, if they're not eating, it's because you're doing something wrong or they're gravid or, you know, some other ailment, but those things will eat. Yeah. If my, if my white lip stops eating, she's dead. So, um, (laughs) but look, the good thing is, is that I'm kind of trying keeping a few things on. Um, I don't have immediate access to live rodents. Like I could call a guy and go get it, but I usually plan out getting my live when I need frozen thawed. So, you know, uh, if I go to a show back when there were shows, I pick up a couple of live rodents and that's about once a month, maybe twice a month. Um, and then sometimes like the winter break stuff, there's not one, like there's one at the beginning of December and there's not another one till the end of February kind of deal. So, um, it kind of sporadic feeds certain animals. So like yeah. my, my, my blonde hogs, my speckled hogs, um, and then my uh, adult female white lip, and then my younger male white lip are all on live. And it actually keeps them with the body tone because, like, the hogs can get fat quick too. Sure. Um, so I've actually gotten the blonde hogs to a what I consider a good breeding size just by when I come in from a show, they get like four mice and they eat them all. And then they don't eat again for a month, maybe yeah. two. Well, and that's kind of like it almost replicates a natural food cycle, which is really good. Especially, <laughs> excuse me, especially like you were saying in the winter when like the last available meal is around December and then nothing until February. That's that's very close to what mm-hmm. you know we generally regard as as food cycling for seasonality with python breeding. So, um, yeah, I actually did that with uh, my giant hogs uh, last season, and and I do it every every year i think for pretty much everything in here they definitely get a a drop in prey availability and i think it it gives their organs a a chance to like run at a slower operating pace which is good for longevity yeah um you know it gives them a chance to clear out any excess waste in their system and just really efficiently use what fat stores they have and and then it gives you a break on cleaning and gives your wallet a break a little bit exactly it they're not gonna like it, they're not going to die. How, like, I mean, like how many times have I said that the worst thing that a male could do in my collection is become a proven breeding male. Cause now you're on maintenance food for the rest of your life. You'll yep. get a small rat when I feel like it. 
you know, you're fine. You're not going to die. You're not going to, you know, and they, they don't lose weight or anything. They just, I think it's like every other month, I think with my boys, if that, you know, they might get it. Um, uh, yeah, I think they get it either once a month or every other. So, you know, and they get small rats, nothing above a medium. The girls get the mediums because the boys, I want to stay slim and I want them to keep breeding. And it has worked and it has helped. But, you know, the live feeding, like I have, I try to feed the uh, baby jungles. I, had a, I have a clutch of jungles that I'm trying to get going. And I bought a bunch of live fuzzies and several of them ate, several of them didn't. So what I did is I kind of put them all in a cup and put them in with my speckled hog. And it was like she had found a nest of mice. So ah. it's like, ah, enrichment. And she ate them all. Nice. So I'm that's like, fantastic. And that's whatever, you know, it's, it, it's that kind of stuff. So I think in some instances, live feeding is more conducive to what they would have experienced in the wild. You know, if you're the kind of person that makes sure you go get a live rat every week, you're doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's one of those things like I have to feed today and I know I'm going to go downstairs and feed the babies. And then I have to feed, um, the big colubrids because they're on the Python baby feeding schedule because they just eat everything. And then it comes right out the back of them in like a day. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <sighs> yeah. They, Cre- they're, they're, like, <laughs> they're like a conveyor belt. Of oh food. my God. And I, I, I have my Kribo where I give them a plate of food. Like I don't hand feed my Kribo. I just put a plate right. of food down. I walk away and I got the Vietnamese blue beauties to be on the same thing. And the Chinese King rats. So it's hilarious because I'll put it down and they'll get all mad and whip around the cage and it'll come back and they'll have like their face in the bowl. <laughs> like, and they'll be grabbing something like a chicken leg or of the small rat that's in there or whatever hunk of fish. And then they'll just come up and sometimes they got like three things in their mouth and they're just eating. And I'm like, all right, whatever. I'm like, they're pigs. So oh, it's, <laughs> but that's, awesome. uh, that's really them. cool to see. That's really oh, neat. It's, it's, it's fun. And, you know, I'm trying to get it to the point where, um, it's like my zoo, zoo mind where it's like, don't come at me. I'm just putting the bowl down. <laughs> like, don't get, <laughs> wait for the bowl. And I'm like, it's not working. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think it's, I think it's a bridge too far for them. Uh, but it's, it's definitely helping me like my blue beauties put on a ton of size this past yeah. year. And I'm like, sweet. And then the Kribos, um, they're getting ready to go. And I, I I'm, I'm kind of, pushing the female a little bit because I want to make sure she's well over six foot mark before I attempt breeding again and stuff like that just because of what happened this year. So sure. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I actually need to be on that same schedule for my female blacktail because she's got four and a half years of age under her belt. Now it's time to really prime those pumps and, and put some, some last minute weight on before winter. So she's, yeah, because I was thinking about this the other day. They pair up in October, and I'm like, "Shit, that's close!" Like, yeah, like, yeah. I'm like, "Oh God!" And then I've left the Vietnamese Blue Beauties together, and I separate them for uh, feeding. I just hook one, doesn't matter which, put it into an empty cage that's nearby, and then give them their plates of food. Um, and they'll eat them regardless of if I like. I, I think I put one in a 32 quart bin one time. Which, if you know a Vietnamese blue beauty, that's a lot of snake to put in a bin. Um, <laughs> it ate its food, and then I put it back in with the other one, and they were fine. So, um, and I'm thinking about just keeping them year round because, you know, I 
hey, I don't know when they're going to breed. They might be October breeders, and I don't want to miss it. I want blue beauty babies. So sure, sure. Yeah. So you you've mentioned a ton of different species I here. I did. <laughs> yeah. And and this might be a, a tough question to to answer like in one go. And I imagine you'll be like, oh yeah. And I also have these like later on. But oh, what? Bitch. <laughs> so th- I wanted to ask this before I get into my next question. But right. What are you, what are you keeping like overall? What, you mean like overall? Like you want a brief overview of everything? Uh, you know, a rough breakdown of like you know how many species and like give a good sample size of those species. It doesn't have to be all of them, but all just right, to sort right, of convey, right. so, convey your diversity. All right. So we, obviously it's the carpet pythons. We, out of them, it's jungle, coastal, um, Darwin. And then, uh, there is, um, bread lie, but I also have a potential IJ project because I have a female out there somewhere. <laughs> that's breeding. <laughs> um, and that's pretty much, I got those. Um, I also have Lyasis. I have um, Maclots, Waters. Um, those are uh, New Guinea Fuscus. And then I have Olive Pythons. Um, and uh, then with also there's the Rough Scale Pythons. There are, what else the hell is down there? Um, I have the Dominican Red Mountain Boas, but they're off somewhere breeding. Um, and then White Lips, Timors. Um, both phase of white lip. I have gold and black. Um, I have ring pythons. Um, ring python. I have all three Madagascar, uh, hognose, uh, uh, Chinese king rats, rhino rat snakes, um, bitch, uh, eastern black king snakes, California king snakes, corn snakes, northern pine snakes. Um, damn it, I think that's it, right? I'm missing something. I know I'm missing something. Yeah, I'm it's sure there'll be uh, the light bulb that comes on later. If, you know, I mean, yeah, the, I mean, obviously the Vietnamese Blue Beauties, we just talked about Unicolor Karibo. Yeah. Um, I'm just going around my room in my head, <laughs> like where yeah. I clean. It's like, right. <laughs> it's like, I know I'm missing something. So, yeah. but yeah, that's where we're at now. So, so for, for most folks, when they're getting into reptiles, they, they either pick like one or two species or they pick. <laughs> one species and grab a bunch of them. Now, when people, when people are specifically focusing on one species, the room can be set to one parameter and they can, you know, have as much success as they, they set up themselves up for. Now, when you start keeping a lot of different species, sometimes you find that, um, you know, a species doesn't work in that way and you have to make adjustments or it's just not going to work with how warm you keep the room or how cool you need it. So how many like spaces or Mm -hmm. reptile rooms do you sort of manage for that and if you have multiple are you arranging the animals in those spaces by a certain organization or like region or climate need or and how do you do that because you've got a ton of animals from all over the world (laughs) um So, so what's your what's your what's your approach i have three rooms um i have the main snake room which has I mean, most of the pythons in there, uh, with the exception of the larger ones that are off into the secondary room, which is just kind of for big pythons. Oh, I have retics too. Son of a bitch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there it was. Yeah. Um, the, uh, um, yeah. So I have the, uh, that's the main python room. 
And then I have uh, the secondary Python room, which is just for, you know, it's only got like, I think 10 cages in it, but they're all six by two by two. Like they're big. Um, and then uh, I have the other room, which is where I keep the incubator, but there's also a rack in there for Collier Brits, which um, the ones that are kept out in the incubator room, those are n- mainly my North American Collier Brits, corn snakes, king snakes, uh, pine snakes. Um, a lot of the Asian rat snakes are actually in uh, the python room, but their racks and cages are not on heat. Ah. So, so, so you've got your North American stuff in the incubator room because they can run it cooler and your incubator doesn't have to work as hard, correct? Right. Well, my incubator didn't. Like, it's one of those things of that uh, the problem came – the problem isn't really about keeping during the year because it, it, the, the room – Itself, you don't really need to heat the room too bad for python species right. because um, the cages themselves will throw off all the heat you need to pump the room up. All you need to have is well insulated. And then in each individual cage has a, um, uh, a heat panel and a thermostat probe. So they'll manage themselves. The issue then comes in for breeding season because you can't keep the bread lie in that room and get them to breed. So, and also like we talked about with the temperatures of dropping the olive pythons to carpets would not enjoy that at all. Um, the same thing also kind of goes for the Asian rat snakes. They are fine being kept in like a high 70, low 80 degree room year round, but come breeding season, they want the cold. Um, so around breeding season here is when everything is a jumbled mess. Um, Everything gets paired up, which opens up a ton of cages in the big room, which means the bread lie move to the big python room where the temperature drops down to like 50-something degrees at night. Um, And that gets them to go. The other Asian rat snakes go into the colubrid room where the temperatures drop. Like basically the, the thermostat turns off. And whatever that room gets to is whatever that room gets to. And I don't have any eggs cooking at that point, so I don't care how cold the incubator gets. It doesn't need to be running right now. Right. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things where that seems to be what works out best. But like you said, it's the, I wouldn't set up, um, cause I think even my, my, um, my Kribo, they don't have heat in mm-hmm. the room because mm-hmm. it's like, actually, I'm sorry. They do have, they have the, uh, ceramic heaters that just turn on and bump the temp in the cage to 82. And then they turn off at noon. So it's one of those things where you kind of have to know what each snake needs. And if you're willing or if you want to keep multiple species, you can't have a room that's designed around one species. You have to have, you have to break it down to cage by cage by cage. And that can be hard. You know, you can't, if you're going to keep diamond pythons in like my room, I don't think you could because if you were to keep them up at the high stack of the cage, they're going to get warmed by the cage beneath it. And it's going to be a little hotter. That means that their um, panel might not turn on as much, but the cage is still going to get up to temperature. Sure. Um, same thing. So it's like, it's one of those things where you kind of have to break it down and you may have to expand out to different rooms. So. Yeah, I think it would be really convenient for a varied collection having multiple spaces that you can manage differently like that but it definitely does take some know-how and some understanding of those animals natural history especially if breeding is your goal because then you need to really 
mimic their their environment and give them all those cues that they, that species may depend on. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually do a lot of the same things. I have Kribos in the same room with all these pythons. And because the room is warm, um, I actually don't heat their cages. They get the natural ambient fluctuation because I'm also managing the ambient climate of the room most. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm keeping that within parameters. Now, I don't have the diversity that you do, so I'm able to keep a couple things in here. But like I know those species limits, and I know sometimes it gets a little warm in here that the Kribos would, you know, not be as thrilled, but, you know, because it's just them and not like a bunch of other species, uh, it's okay. And I can manage that and and keep their cage down and do a lot of different things and put, you know, put the the cages closest to the floor and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's honestly, um, it's when you start thinking about the heat systems inside the cages as being like a safety net, like, the heat system will turn on if the cage gets to this point, like if it gets below this temperature, you know, that's how we should think of it. Not as we need to use the heat panel to make the cage this temperature right. because it's going to potentially get there anyway. The whole point is to make sure that they don't get below a certain temperature that can get into danger. Right. Um, I mean, I'll tell you right now, I have a 32, I have one of those 32 quart racks that you can also put like, you can either do, a 32 long ways or two 15 quarts, depending on how you pick. Um, and that's where I keep my, my rhino rats. I mean, they're just in those and it's unplugged by the door. And then on top of it are these one by one cages that actually have the blonde hogs in them. Ah, no attempts, nothing. It's just unplugged. I could pick it up and move it, but it's right by, it's right by the, it's actually in between the two doors. It's in between the, the first door you walk into my snake room and then the one you open to get into the incubator room. So it's right in between those two. And um, I have fans in my rooms that are pointed at the doors. So you kind of have flow, air flows towards the doors. So there's no drafts. Everything goes out. So um, they're right in that crosswind. So they get it from both ways. And they, they do fine. I got I got two clutches of rhinos cooking right now. So clearly I'm doing something right. Yeah, so. you're doing something right. <laughs> so, so as far as ventilation goes and airflow, that's another thing that is uh, overlooked and, and not talked about often. Most people are just kind of managing um, ambient temperatures, hot spots, and then occasionally mm. humidity. But what's your what's your take on the importance of ventilation and and moving and, and keeping the air? It's, it's extremely important. I mean, I, I used to not think it was anything important, and then I kind of went over to Matt Minotola's place a few times, and he's got fans mounted on his ceiling pointed at the doors and i asked him what that was for and he goes it kills the draft number one plus it circulates the air so heat moves more heat moves better because the air circulating constantly and then also you don't die cleaning your snakes you know i'm downstairs and the room is 81 but it doesn't feel like it because i got fans whipping around me so it's it's a little bit better for me too but you know, I don't have to worry about a draft coming in from under the door if the incubator room's down to like 50 degrees. Um, to the point where I actually, um, this season during, because we normally we get about one or two really big snowstorms in Pennsylvania a year. We got like some dustings here and some dustings. I wouldn't really get the major one. I, I had to open the doors to the main snake room to make the room drop. Oh, to wow. a certain temperature to get below because I had to. And this is something that I would have never thought of. But um, the way that the fans helped with that is, is it blew 
at nighttime, I'd go downstairs, the lights would turn off, I'd do my bed checks, and then I'd open up all the doors, and the fans just swept all the hot air out of the rooms. So it circulated everything. So it was able to get that temp- those those room that room down to the temperature I wanted to get to as soon as I could. Um, so it was just kind of a better way to do that. And then in the morning time, I'd come, lights would turn on, and I'd do the morning checks. And I close the doors and then the temp would move up quickly because like in Australia and a lot of places where these animals are from, that's just the way it is. Sun rises and the whole area just gets hot rather quickly. So you kind of also had this kind of air warming and air cooling effect too. So whatever helps. So so you're leaving that door open overnight, like all night, if you need to get it down, right? Yeah, because what I'll do is basically um, I, I open up the room to the snake room, uh, which actually uh, the main snake room opens up to uh, my bar area where I keep my big guys. So that opens ah, okay. up the whole basement. And then I also open up the door to the incubator room. Okay. And then that kind of moves everything. Like I said, the cages have the heat panels to make sure that the animals don't go below a certain point. Like I'll walk downstairs and my, my basement of my house will be like 59, 57 degrees, but the cages that each individual animals in, you know, they've stopped at the temperatures that I wanted them to stop at. So like the heat panels turned on to make sure that yeah. they didn't drop below right. that. So, which is good because then the team worst got to where they needed to go. So did the olives, but then the carpet stopped at 70. They're huddled underneath their heat panel because, you know, it's a little chilly, but also where they're, where the main Python room is, that's the one that's completely underground. The other two are potentially, because I have a walkout basement. So the snake room in the back is actually on ground level. So it does not get as cold as the one tucked in the back. So, yeah. Are you opening the the most external door out to? No, dear God, no. <laughs> I was going to say, y'all have some, you have some critters out there. You'd, have, you'd walk downstairs, find a whole raccoon. Like, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, well, shit. Like, no, it's um, no, I don't. Uh, I haven't gone to that extreme yet. Um, there have been times where I'm downstairs, like, say, I got to go out back and shovel some snow or something like that. I might open the external door, but leave the glass door, the storm door, closed. Yeah. And that, that, that gives them a nice little spike. I mean, the whole point is that the animals need to experience a certain temperature for the female to ovulate or do, um, you know, or, or for the male to produce sperm. Without right. that, then I'm not doing it. This is how we get slug clutches because somebody somewhere didn't hit the temps needed to produce what they needed to produce. I mean, yeah. we got to get the trigger somewhere. So... Yeah, and it's it's hard in some places. You know, it gets hot, and the seasons are different. So you'll find that you have to get creative like that. For yeah, sure. I mean, we're luckily I'm not in a place where you have to get an air conditioner. I mean, I remember going to Bill Steagle's place, and he had some unit in his snake room that was something like you would see at like a motel, where it could do AC and heat, and he had that plugged into a thermostat, and that's how he has to run his room because. You know, it might get cold as hell, but then it also might be hot as hell. So these got to be able to pump cold air yeah. into the room. I've never had to pump cold air into my snake room in Pennsylvania. So, 
Yeah, I uh, I definitely wish I had a like a portable AC unit to do that for a few months out of the year because it'll get hundred degrees outside, and I for unfortunately don't live in like a super newly built uh, mm-hmm. place, and it it doesn't insulate all that well, so it gets great like climate swings. It definitely experiences seasons, but it hits some extremes that I would prefer on the hot side. It didn't. I've got the heat side, you know, figured out. But then the other thing that people need to remember is when you're pumping. Uh, like an AC unit into a room, you're zapping all the ambient moisture. And if you're running a heater, that's also going to kill a lot of that moisture too. So you, you will find that uh, then you're also going to be battling some humidity uh, issues as well. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. And I have a humidifier in here that, you know, I'm always, I'm always tinkering with those toys, you know, those settings and, and whatnot, trying to keep the ambient in the room agreeable for all these species uh, if if you're going to keep i mean if you're going to be a one species kind of breeder that's totally fine but you then can tailor the room to be for that one species i mean everybody who does the you know no uh or just ambient heat method it's usually because they keep one species if they have multiple species one will not like it you know it's it's like how I could keep ambient temperatures for carpets, but you know, I wouldn't breed bread lie um, or inlands or diamonds. I would have to go to an extreme or do something different. So, right. Yeah. yeah. I know a lot of folks that for those species, they they'll like put them in tubs and wheel them out into the garage because yeah. you know, the garage will dip low or something like that. But that just always seems to scare me a little bit. It's just kind of they, less, less control over things. I used to t- put the colubrids in bins with water and then like put them in the garage and be like, I'll see you in spring. And I'm like, I don't think I could do that now. Yeah. It's, with, with, with pythons. And I think with, you know, inherent species in general, unless they are a species that, you know, for a fact burrows into hibernacula and just chills out. Like we're talking like corn snakes, king snakes, things like that. Like mm-hmm. stuff, you know, that burrows down and just doesn't move. Um, it, they need the dip, but then they need the sun. Like it's, I can drop, I bet you I could drop my pythons to, you know, 55. And I actually have, but they better be getting 84 at noontime the next day. Right. Right. Otherwise that's when you're going to run into problems. So with the, with my, um, colubrid species, I've actually dropped them down. Like, like I said, I like the whole thing just turns off at night. So whatever the temp is, the temp is, but then it rises back up to, I think, um, high sixties during the daytime. So they have that moment where the sun comes up and warms everything up because sometimes you can go outside and, you know, it doesn't stay 30 degrees from October to February. Like it's not a constant thing. So I've done that and it's working out so far. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, it, it warms up a little bit during the day, but ultimately that night drop is is the crucial part. So right, that's the thing that you need, and also it's I f- I found the night drop with the day rise is one of those things that you can do to get the North American species okay because they get the night drop, and also I add like a ton of extra mulch in their cages, but then it also gets the Asian rat snakes okay too because they have the drop, but then it also does go up a little bit. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, so the only can- things. You can use that with a lot of different species then. So far, I've used it with corn snakes and rhino rats and calicangs. 
I'll let you know what else breeds this year. <laughs> and then we'll just add them to the pot. They were all in the same rack. So, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, yeah, definitely the eggs are the proof in the pudding, right? You definitely were doing that right. So, yeah, um, they all laid when I was gone, too. I'm like, what uh, the hell? <laughs> they are waiting. They were rude. Um, so, w- what are some of the biggest challenges you face in managing your diversity of species? Uh, the, the, you might want to try to do something to help out one and it might be detrimental to another, you know, it's like, I tried this and they seem to like it, but then these other ones over here are not having a good time. You know, it's, it, it's kind of those things where also it's like the food regulations. Like we, we talked about with Kribos and stuff like that. Like, you know, you, you, you have to feed, so much more because certain animals of different species are going to eat more than your other ones. Um, you know, it, it also has, it's got, that's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, I need to feed the Kribo and the beauties the same way I feed my baby pythons because that's just what their feed metabolism is. But I cannot feed the bait. I cannot feed the rhino rat snakes like that because then they'll just get fat. So the rhino rat snakes are on the same feed schedule as my normal cow kings. Um, my Chinese king rats are on that same fee schedule. And then my Madagascar giants, they're in some sort of sick hybrid in between. <laughs> where, it's like, where it's like, do I feed them now? Sure. Like, it's just one of those things where um, you got to watch for that kind of stuff. Now, the other thing is that it is also helping me because I've fed stuff to my carpets that I would have never thought of feeding to them ever. If not for the Kribo, the Blue Beauties, um, and the uh, Chinese King Rats, you know, um, I know you and I have talked about it a couple times about like fish products and things like that. Yeah. And I had a carpet that she laid a clutch of eggs and she looked horrible. And I got her to eat a medium rat and she still looked horrible. But I had I was cutting up chunks of tilapia to give to all the other snakes. And the thing about the fish is that you cut a chunk and you got to think about the protein um in that chunk of fish and what it equals to like i cannot give them a chunk the size of a small rat and be like that's about equal no no it is not (laughs) it's like um so i had a chunk there and i'm like well and then i gave it to her she took it and i'm like well shit um and then uh, it was my store up the street had a sale on chicken drumsticks um, I think right before the 4th of July, it was like these big packages full of them and they were like, buy two, get something. I'm like, whatever. I brought them home and I fed every single female carpet python a chicken leg and she ate it. Nice. And their chicken legs, the size of like medium rats. And I'm like, well, shit. All right. So there's things that you can do. And also like, Hey, that helps my food bill. <laughs> and also, you know, it, it's, it, she looks better and she got she bounced back from breeding within a month um so it's just there's there's different things you can do to kind of help yourself out there especially with animals like um the kribo and stuff like that is if you limit yourself to that they must eat white european frozen thawed rodents from this breeder you're you're hurting yourself more often than not so yeah Especially with Kribos. I mean, uh, John Michaels and his partner uh, at Black Pearl Reptiles, they've been uh, finally putting out some little species profiles on their various dry Marcon. And one of the things they hit on 
uh, in most of them is diet and like how they strongly advise not feeding only a road based yeah. diet with them and how very diet is very important for them. And I can see it firsthand in the conditions of my animals when if I don't, you know, keep the moisture content up or I don't switch up their diet enough, they kind of like, they're still going to eat it, but their scales aren't as like, they don't have that luster. Drab. Yeah. Yeah. When you keep, when you keep like fish oils in their diet or like lean fats and meats from like quails or chickens and things like that. So it's not just as fat lab grade sort of rodent. You get a different like sort of healthy look to them. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I, I gave them um, uh, smaller chicken eggs and quail eggs and they liked the quail eggs, but they ate them whole hmm. to the point where they were like pooping out quail eggs. Like there was <laughs> like, they had not broken. They didn't do anything else. They were just quail eggs in like their cages. And I'm like, all right, that's no more quail eggs. Like you guys are just stupid. So, <laughs> but you know, it, it's just one of those things where, I think, again, it goes back to the constant fear of how do I get my jungle carpet python off of mice? Mm. Well, do you really have to? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a valid and question. And then, then the other part is, well, I mean, who cares? I don't care. I don't care. I don't care what it's eating. I really don't give a damn. I'll, I'll figure out, eat something, and I will figure out how to get it. Um, and then the other part of it is, is that, you know, my biggest fear was the second an animal moves on to rats is, is was to get a carpet onto rats as soon as possible. Because if you ever gave it another mouse after that, it would always go back and I would never be able to feed it another single rat ever again. That's not true. <laughs> like I, I fed the carpets chicken and they weren't like, and then the next week I showed them rats and they were like, Oh, and they ate them too. Like, it's not, you know, it, it's not, uh, it's not like I broke them. So, Right. You know, and I have several animals that are on mice, like my albino Darwin, my breeder male jungle, and my female rough scale python are all in mice. They don't, they don't really like rats. They just don't take them. Hmm. Um, but I went to my bre- went to my rodent guy, and I'm like, I need retired pregnant females, and I got them. So they're a mouse the size of a small rat. Yeah. So super, then, super big. Yeah. And they each get two of them at every feeding. So, you know, they're, they're fine. I mean, the male Darwin's taken a couple years longer to mature. He's finally got that head development, but the jungle carpet bred this year. And so did the rough scale. Hmm. So, yeah, I think they definitely have preferences sometimes, but it's very much individual snakes that, you know, like you can't just say that they all do this. It's just one individual might right. have preference. And then, yeah, you, you'll find that sometimes after a season of breeding, their preference can change after you give. Oh them yeah. And also like, you can break them with that. I had one Mac that's preference was chicks bird uh-huh. and I put him down for breeding season. Didn't breed him, woke him back up and then offered him nothing but rats. And he took. Yeah. Yeah. So, and now he eats chicken, rats, fish, he'll eat whatever I give him. It doesn't yeah, matter. You, you almost have to hit those cues that make them realize like, you know, this is important to, to get calories in and survive. Mm-hmm. Don't be so picky. And it, it's almost, it's almost favoring that old survival instinct that 
you know, comes with a very healthy, long-lived animal out in the wild. So to me, that seems like a sign of robust health in in our captive animals, if you can get them thinking and behaving that way. Yeah. I mean, if you can get them off the mindset of, you know, um, I have to eat now because I don't know when food's coming or I won't eat this. This is not the normal thing. It's it's really kind of one of those things where um, if they're fed correctly, they'll eat every time because they don't know when food's coming because you don't know when you're going to feed next. Sure. You know, it's avoiding a schedule. Exactly. Like babies are every 10 to 14 days. Mm -hmm. Baby pythons. Um, Adult animals are my female carpets are usually every 14 days, every two weeks. And then my males are whenever I feel like it. Yeah. So I'll be feeding the females one time and then I'll just thaw out the male food stuff, you know, uh, you know, that being said, certain of the other animals, like I'm only feeding my male white lip bird because he's, he came to me as a big animal mm-hmm. and he shouldn't be this big. And I don't want to grow the female up because that's the other problem is that people buy one and the one's too big. So then they break the other one so that they can breed together. It's uh, like, yeah. it's like the female's huge. Well, the only way to make the only way to breed her is to get a male huge. It's like, no, don't. And then, now you've broken both animals. So I have him and I'm just trying to keep him as slim as possible because white lips are not big animals, not gold faces. So um, the only chance I have to potentially breed him with my female is if he slims down enough and if she stays where she's at. So we'll see. Yeah, fingers crossed, man. That's uh, That'd be I, I cool. Think, I think that would be so neat to finally see some more captive bred white lips in uh, in the U.S. population, dude. Next year, because like next year, the problem with me is, is that I I produce it and then I'm like, <laughs> and then I go on autopilot. Like I'm not gonna focus that hard on olives next year. <laughs> it's like yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna put them together, and if they breed, cool. If not, whatever. I've already done it. So right. Um, right. I'm gonna really focus on the white lips, and then uh, if I can get the Karibo and the rough scale. Cause both of those went bad for me this year. If I can do those next year, I'll be happy. Everything else is, you know, I say that and, and I produce a caramel exanic and he's been, been a, my obsession since I hatched him. So <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I don't really care. Ooh, pretty. It's like, yeah. So, <laughs> well, you, you got to go back to your roots. Of course, there's no, denying that. Can't. That's- and it, it's fun to think about that kind of stuff. Cause it's like, you know, I hatched, um, hatched his grandparents and now I hatched him kind of yeah. a deal. So that's yeah. pretty sweet. Yeah, it's cool. That's really neat. Um, so have there been any species that you've wanted to keep, but they just didn't work out in your style? <laughs> like, um, I, I know what I'm getting at, but like, I think this is something people need to hear because people get on this Noah's Ark syndrome and they, they feel super empowered because we have thermostats and heaters and air conditioning units. And they're like, I'm just going to get everything. And it doesn't doesn't work. work. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, I can tell you right now I kept bloods and that did not go well. Um, they don't like it as hot as I kept my room at the time. And when bloods get hot, they don't really, they just get nasty, just get mean. So I had a bad experience with bloods. Um, ended up giving my one that I had to Matt Minitola just because I, it wasn't conducive for my setup or my room or anything else. 
And then it ended up going over to Matt's and thriving and like, he's cuddling it and holding it in pictures. So it's like, okay. So, (laughs) um, I say them, uh, I'd say that I I have terrible luck with Savu pythons. I don't know why, but, um, I've had several and each one, it just up and just out of the blue has died on me. And it's weird because every other liasis that I've had has just been rock solid for me. I mean, glitch, Glitch lost an eyeball. <laughs> like he's like <laughs> my Maclots Python male had cancer and I had his eye removed and all he does now is he has to turn his head to look at you and that's it. Nothing does not face him at all. He ate the day after they took his eyeball out. And so yeah. um but like Savus, I just have terrible luck with them. So I'm a little gun shy when it comes to them. Um I would love to add them to the collection, but I don't think I will. I think I'm just Gonna just not them for right now, and then maybe down the road, uh, we'll see. I mean, um, as far as anything else, I mean, there really hasn't really been anything that I've tried and had horrible non-success with. Um, you know, I would say that monitor lizards aren't for me uh, because they need to eat a lot more than uh, – a lot more often than I, than my snakes. And also they're just filthy. So, um, (laughs) they are. Yeah. So, um, you know, that being said, if I could like have an outdoor enclosure with Merton's monitors in there, I would, that would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, (sighs) yeah, that's about it. One day, maybe. Yeah. If you move to Florida, that ain't happening. No, Nope. All right. Pennsylvania's stuck with you. Yep. They can't get rid of me now that can Eric. He tried so hard. But, you, you know. You can't keep the man out of PA. No. So it, so we're just going to have to figure that out. But um, were there any species that surprised you uh, when bringing them that they did well where you're, you're like, not entirely sure and it was sort <laughs> of a, an experiment? You're like, well, I really want them. I'm not sure if this is going to work, but we'll give it a shot because the opportunity presents itself. Like, were there any that just, like, you oh, brought them home and I mean, they the ground running. I mean, I mean, Kribo. I mean, those those kind of fell into my lap when I was offered the Kribo. And I was just like, well, I guess we'll figure this out. And then I had them and they were in quarantine. I'm like, they're doing good. And then I moved them downstairs and I'm like, I don't know if sure I like where they're at here. And then kind of tweaked it there. The same thing went with the rhinos. You know, I, I, I really had some interest in rhino rat snakes. And I had a uh, green tree python. And Buddy Buscemi offered me a trio of rhino rat snakes, um, two related and then one completely unrelated, uh, for the the green tree. And I've I've not had great luck with green tree pythons either, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I'm like, done, take it. And we did the trade. And I'm like, well, let's see how this one goes. And I got them. My my rhinos were probably about a year old when I got them, maybe younger. I'm not sure because they hadn't made they hadn't had the complete color change yet but they did not have their baby colors. Like they weren't like gray. Um, and I just uh, gave it a shot and I was expecting, you know, it, what, what you told when you get started is Asian rat snakes are fragile. They, they don't like this. They don't like that. You have to keep them in a wine chiller and blah, 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 blah. blah. And I'm like, Oh crap. So I'm like, well, I'll just keep them here and I just won't plug them in and we'll just see what happens. And they took off like gangbusters. You know, it was, it was the, um, 
And I could either tongue feed them and they'd come at me like maniacs or I just lay their food down when they're not paying attention and close the bin. Yeah. And run. So <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things where it worked out. So, um, and I was kind of surprised that it worked out well. Like I was not expecting to get eggs my first try. Yeah. But whatever. Cool. So, and, and the thing is, is that you kind of got to keep trying and then surprising yourself with success. Like, oh crap, they bred. Or, oh, oh crap, I was able to keep them alive. Oh crap, they bred. Oh crap, they're eggs. Oh crap, they're babies. Oh crap, I got the babies eating. Like, it's like, yeah, you've got to keep surprising yourself. Otherwise, you know, you, you, you're going to have a bad time. Like, I, baby rhinos eat fish, dude. You ever started babies on fish? Uh, one, my, my first, actually both of my Kribos, when I first got them as babies, I started them on fish. Aha. Okay. So I've never done this before. So now it comes down to the, what do you do? Do I get a tank with a bubbler and just go get a shit ton <laughs> of rosies? Like, what am I doing here? <laughs> do I go to the store and just fill up a bag and fill up their water dishes for one feeding? Well, yeah. Okay. But I got two clutches of rhinos. So that's like. <laughs> 20 yeah. you're gonna have to experiment i would uh i found that my kribos were so terrified of me as babies because i was such a big you know being coming into their their world looming over them and handing some some thing on a stick pointed right <laughs> at their face they're like what is going on but as soon as i you know, started experimenting with different foods and options like scenting with, with, uh, silver sides or leaving frozen thawed silver sides, or I even got like a couple minnows and goldfish and just put them in like a really tiny ceramic bowl of water so that they were moving so much that it just looked like this chaos in a bowl and it got both of their attentions. Uh, yeah. and, and you know, one or two feeds like that. And then scenting wasn't a problem. And then all of a sudden, they realized that I was the source of their favorite thing in the world, which is food. And then it was off to the races at that point. I've heard that with, it's like you put the silver sides in, but you only leave the smallest amount of water in there. So that every time the silver sides move, it's like splashing water all around. Yeah. And that's what gets them to look, um, you know, yeah. and, and it just brings me back to, you know, the Dominican red mountain bows. Cause that was, honest to God, going to strictly reptiles and getting a hundred house gecko and putting them all in those cages. And then, um, you know, uh, them getting, then going through that. And I had to put up, like, I think I had to order, I think I had to do two orders of house gecko before I finally got enough eating that I could thaw out fuzzies with, a house gecko in the water to get them to eat that stuff with scenting and things like that. So <clears throat> I imagine with the rhinos, it's going to be the same kind of thing. It's going to be, or go to the, <laughs> the supermarket or the <laughs> um, pet store, get a <laughs> bunch of, get a bunch of little baby feeder fish, see which ones will take them in the bowl, then see which ones will take them thawed, see which ones will take them with, you know, a pinky with them scented and then see where it goes. Um, yeah, I mean, for first, I'm going to try is the scenting because I think the best sure. I would do would be to get them to eat a scented pinky. Yeah, you start with what seems to be the most convenient, like if it happens to work out, that would make your life, and then just expect to have to backpedal a few steps to get them right. there. I mean, and the other thing is that you can also find stuff that help you out. Like, 
I've been talking with a friend of mine who breeds button quail. And oh, very nice. I'm like, dude, what I'm like, how, how many babies are you hatching? He goes, oh, they're, they're, they're laying eggs all the time. So I have a ton of babies. I'm like, well, do you want to give me some that are alive or do you want to give me some that are frozen? He goes, I'll, he's like, I'll gas them and freeze them for you. He's like, what do you need? I'm like, I need you to fill up a gallon freezer bag with them and then just bring them to me. Like, just tell me how much you want and bring it to me. Because if I can get a bird the size of like a large carpenter bee to offer to some babies over here, I'm in business. That'll be good. Yeah. So those are tiny little things. So that's a good, good food. Yeah. I mean, apparently olives eat nothing but birds when they start out. Mm. So I can try scenting or yeah. yeah. Or you can just go get some button quail and just, you know, take the easy route for sure. Yeah, try the button quail and then get them going. Because here's the thing, if they start eating button quail like it's going out of style, I'll list them and say, hey, these things are for sale. They're eating frozen thawed button quail. Yeah. And if you really want them, somebody's going to want them. Somebody's going to take them. So then, then they can figure out uh, how to provide them that food and move them forward. Or otherwise, the next thing I do is I attempt to position them onto more readily available prey, like frozen thawed mice. Right. Well, and if you, if you get them going on button quail for a month or so, by the time they're ready for sale and they do go to somebody, they might already be at a size where they can buy the commercially available, like week old quail that companies like Rodent Pro and whoever. Right. Or, or small chicks. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So they're, it, they're big babies, dude. <laughs> like it's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a handful of a baby right there. So I imagine, yeah. you know, a few weeks and feeds on some, some button quail and then boom, move them up. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, that's their option. It's just I'm saying that a lot of people paint themselves into corners because their animal doesn't eat a frozen thawed European white mice once every seven to 10 days. It's like, well, you know, maybe they don't have to. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Are your, uh, well, I should ask, are rhino rats a diurnal species? Uh, they move around during the day most of the time. A lot of my colubrids do their daytime stuff. It's weird because you walk into the room during uh, the daytime and all the carpets are pretty much bedded down. They might be hanging, looking for food, but um, that's pretty much it. Uh, but it's the, like the, the, the colubrid is, um, crebos are moving, king snakes are moving, everything else moving. And some of the, the rhinos are also in that group too where they're moving. Um which is weird because the Chinese king rats move only at nighttime. Interesting. Are they are they a cave dwelling species? The king rats? Uh, I'm not exactly sure, um, but I know that they get. I almost feel like they get big, and um, so I almost feel like they wouldn't be a cave dwelling species because I don't think they need to care unless it's a king cobra coming around the corner. So. Yeah, I feel like they would be more of a forest dwelling. The reason why I ask is because I know my Krebos are so visually oriented, and if if your rhino rats are visually oriented and they really focus on movement and stimulation like that, um, for any you know odd diurnal colubrid, if they've got a a particular um, prey species that they need to start out on live and and something that moves around is you know it seems to hit that trigger for them to at least get them started. Right. You know, like the same thing with picky carpets. Like if, if they're young and, and you can get one of those tiny little fuzzy hoppers, that just like kind of skits and crawls and, you know, popcorns around. It just hits that little instinct going for movement that they key in on. And it really sort of helps them figure out what's food and what isn't. So I, 
I'm curious uh, what will happen with your rhino rats when you get babies as far as their response and if you do have to start with some sort of live first step in order to transition them into a more readily available frozen thought alternative. Yeah, to be honest, I've, I've started doing the whole thing where it's like, all right, give me get a, let me get a couple feedings alive for these carpets and then I'll start shifting them over to frozen thought. And I've had the hardest time with this group of jungles because they don't want the live. Um, you know, normally they would eat a couple live and then they would eat a couple frozen thought and then they're up for sale. And these jungles, they just don't want the live and they don't want the frozen thought either. So I finally broke down this pastime and I hit him with the chick down mm -hmm. on the frozen thought. And I, I got a red tiger jag from Eric. And I offered her food and she didn't want it. And then I offered her alive and she didn't want it. So I added her to the list of the same babies. So I just took these frozen thawed pinkies and covered them fuzzies and covered them with chick down. Um, I live out near Lancaster, PA, so I can get chicken, you know, male chicks readily available. Um, so I covered them with the chick down and I got all the baby jungles that had not previously taken a meal to eat those. And then. The funniest thing is I'm trying to feed the carpet that Eric gave me and it just, it's trying to hide its head and it does whatever. So then I just kind of leave it alone and I kind of hold the fuzzy out and you can see like it flicks its tongue and it keys in on it. So then it turns its head and then it is stretching its neck out and I'm just holding it and it just keeps coming out to the point where it's stretching almost completely across the bin. And it's jabbing its nose at this fuzzy and then just slowly opens up its mouth and then just starts taking the food, like no biting, no wrapping. It's just starting to work the food down. And I have to hold the back end of this fuzzy until a certain point where she's got most of it and I let go and she takes the rest of it. And then I have to wait there, not breathing, hiding underneath the bin and for her to finish. And I can slowly close the bin. And it's like, that chick down is what keyed her in because she didn't want the frozen thawed. She didn't want the live. It was the chick down that she could sense that keyed it in is that this is prey. So, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, last time I got chicks for just generic food enrichment for my Kribos or anything, I, uh, I plucked some, some feathers off of one of them and, and zip locked them just for some future stubborn feeders. And I've got the, uh, the repti links, uh, mm -hmm. in my freezer. Um, you know, I tried those with minimal, uh, success with the, the children I babies I had last season, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's just another one of those tools that I keep at the ready for, you know, those occasional stubborn feeders. Cause every once in a while you'll get a whole clutch that'll eat frozen thawed, you know, fuzzies right off the bat. And then there's like one who holds out for months and months until you mm -hmm. eat just try something different. All of a sudden it's like, why haven't you given me this before? Duh. <laughs> I just like, damn it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, just, it's, I, if I'm ever doing something, if I'm going to go put in a thing for my, my rodent guy, and he's got like quail this time or, you know, uh, bags of chicks. I'll just buy a couple. Cause it's good. Like, yeah, like, I mean the Kribo, normally the Kribos get a lot, uh, a small rat, a couple chicks and then maybe like fish or chicken leg or turkey neck or something like that's usually what the Kribo diet is. Um, but having those chicks around are really good because I'll rip off all the feathers to use for scenting and then the Kribo will still eat it like they don't care. <laughs> so 
it's not like you have to worry about that kind of stuff. Like, you know, if I'm, if you're, if you have to go down the lane of like, uh, cutting mouse tails and trying to force feed those, yeah. I mean, the Kribos will still eat them. <laughs> like it's one of those things where, uh, they're my garbage disposals and it's fantastic. Oh yeah. So, Everyone should have a garbage disposal species. If you're keeping like a, a decent sized number of, of animals. Oh yeah. I, I cannot get them to eat the slug eggs though. Like I normally, like I I've heard hmm. you put slugs in there and the Kribos will eat it. Mine just, they don't care. I huh, put, I, I've never tried that. I put a bunch of slug eggs in there this year and I think the female ate one and then the, uh, the male turned his nose up on it. And so did the, uh, uh, Vietnamese blue beauties. They just didn't want them. So I'm like, all right. So, huh. well, good to know. Yeah. But yeah, that's all, that's all good food enrichment. You know, you never know until you try it. I think that's a, a really important thing. And you probably have to be prepared to do that if you're keeping a lot of colubrids and, and unique species. Everything. Yeah. It's something that, I mean, food enrichment as well as like, I put branches in my cages yesterday for my olives and my team wars mm-hmm. and the male olives spent the rest of the day marking it. Like it was his, this is mine now. And he's like rubbing all over it and stuff like that. And that's something that we tend to forget when it comes to reptiles and other things like that, where sometimes little things like that really get them going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They need that stimulation. And it, you're not you're not going to notice it if you're not sitting there paying attention to your animals from time to time either. Yeah, you really want to piss off your male carpets? Put the other male shed in there. You know? <laughs> watch yeah. him. Watch him now for the rest of the day. Cruise around his tub or cage, marking and rubbing his ass on everything, wondering where this other boy is and why he's in his territory. Yeah, you know it's yeah, just like how breeding season. It, it, if I have I have cages with large plexiglass fronts. Um, at breeding season, I'll take a male shed and I'll rip it into pieces about like two, three inches long. And I'll put it in with the other males that are with their girls. And five minutes, you come back in and each male is out and they have their face pressed right up against that shed. And they're just flicking their tongue and they're just inhaling it because where's this guy? What the hell? And yeah, so. Yeah, well, and, and a lot of research uh, into animal behavior is starting to consider that, you know, acute stress, so small amounts of things that might upset an animal in controlled scent environments, you know, things like that piece of shed thrown in with mm-hmm. a male, it's actually good for them. Acute mm-hmm. stretch is, is beneficial enrichment because it triggers different instincts in parts of their brains that we, just by virtue of keeping them in captivity, sort of prevent them from ever experiencing, you know, competition with other males, predator species, things like that. You know, they don't really have to deal with some of those risks that, um, you know, living out in the wild provides on a daily basis. So, you know, if you're really one of those people who wants to give your animal as much of, uh, as much enrichment and stimulation and, you know, keep them as wild as we physically are able to in a closed system like this, you know, doing things like that is probably something you should consider once in a while. Cause even if you're not going to breed them that time of year, they're going around searching for females or mates or whatever, and they're going to come across other males in combat or, or they'll mm-hmm. run or whatever it is, they'll flee. And one way or another, that's a natural behavior for them. So if you're really interested in eliciting natural behaviors, it's not just all positive things, a little bit of acute stress can be, um, utilize as well. Now, 
that's hard to do because you don't want to upset your animal. You don't want to make them angry. You don't want to break any trust or anything like that. But, you know, you can find some sort of way to, to at least well, elicit a response. Right. I mean, let's put it this way. Philadelphia Zoo has um, all their cat cages are on a grid where at any point in time, an animal can be given access to a different yard. So the tigers are in yard A on Monday and the lions are in yard B on Monday. And then on Tuesday or Wednesday, we'll just say the lions now go to yard A. What do you think the male lion does all fucking day? <laughs> He's going to go set and pee on everything. Right. He's going to pee on everything. He's going to wonder, what the hell? This is not the way I left this place. Yeah. He's going to move shit. He's going to knock shit around. The toys are wrong. Nothing's correct. And that's the whole thing. And then, you know, next week he's back in, you know, field enclosure B. The whole point is that is that that gives him something to do. Same thing goes with gorillas. You know, they they have they might shift out the the, the group of bachelors before they shift out the uh, the troop with the silverback. And, you know, he's going to be wandering around going, all right, this is not how I left this. Like, yeah. and that's upsetting to me and I'm going to do my male things and he's going to throw stuff and do whatever. That's technically enrichment for him. <laughs> it's yeah, like, so absolutely. you can do that with snakes, you know, move stuff like it, 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 the conformity of having the hide box here and the water bowl here and this there, I've started using unprinted butcher paper for my liners. So I get them on a big tube and I pull it and I cut it and then I can use it for, 41 quarts, 32, and the cages, because I'll just pull about however much I need, and I slice it, and then we're good. Um, at the end of it, there's these giant cardboard, thick internal tubes. Like, you could hit somebody and knock them unconscious with the things that are that oh, hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I put them in with the Chinese king rats. They never leave them. <laughs> um, I put them in with the Vietnamese blue beauties, with the Karibos. I put them in with, now I'm just starting to throw them in with carpet pythons at this point. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And dude. give a snake a whatever. tube. They're going to cram yeah. themselves into it. Yeah. And you know what? Whatever. It's a cardboard tube. If they piss on it or if it starts getting disgusting, I'm going to throw it out because yeah. I'm going to get another one because there's always going to I always need to keep using paper. Yeah. So I've got, I've got that same tube sitting in a, a Brettles cage uh, behind me right now. Yeah. I, I save them every time I go through one of those rolls because. Yeah, I use some some rolled paper products for a few cages as well. So those tubes are fantastic. Um, another thing that I've found that is a really cheap, easy, and sanitary way to provide hides for massive amounts of babies is throughout the year, you save all of your toilet paper rolls yeah. and, and paper towel tubes. And I stash them. I've got a whole tub in my closet full of like paper towel tubes. And what I'll do is I'll take those and I will cut them in half in the middle. So you've got something the size of a toilet paper tube. And now you've got two hides for two baby snakes and they will all utilize the heck out of them. Um, and I can even take that and cut it in half uh, to make like a half log hide and use mm -hmm. those even smaller snakes like the children I that I had. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, if they soil them, you chuck them and guess what? They're free and you can grab another one out of the bin behind you from saving all those paper towel rolls that you're going to use anyway. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. Pro tip for everyone out there. Yeah. Um, speaking, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of pro tips, um, do you have any pro tips for folks who want to keep a variety, you know, folks like us who can't just do one thing? <laughs> <laughs> um, or like any, any any do's and don'ts or anything like that. 
Uh, number one is always do your research. You know, yeah. don't just assume that the animal that you're going to go get is going to plug in perfect with what you got going on. Of course, nine times out of ten, it will not. Um, and then the other thing is that don't just go if if you're like, oh man, I've been wanting rhino rat snakes for forever. Don't just go to the show and find the dealer table and get the rhinos. Like, call the breeder, buy it from the breeder, buy it from a guy who's going to help you out if something goes wrong or to tell you how to keep it. Um, the issue I have a lot of times is is the people who are like, I just bought this the other day. Please tell me how to take care of it. It's like, I, like if you don't, luckily in, in my sense now is that I'll buy an animal because I've been wanting this animal or I've been thinking about this animal and then I'll go home and I'll set it up. And then while it's in quarantine, I got time to research it and where I'm going to put it and how I'm going to do it. And if I need to make any adjustments, it's fine. I'm pretty confident in my abilities. Sure. But these are like new people where it's like, I've kept a ball Python. I would right. like a black face, white lip. It's like, no, <laughs> it's like yeah. just no. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's just one of those things where they're immediately asking for help. They're all over Facebook trying to, you know, it, do your research first, then get the animal. Um, and I would say that the find out what works best for the species you really love. You know, obviously my bread and butter is my carpet pythons. You know, they, they will be a constant. Other things will come and go, but uh, not them. So for the majority of my rooms and things like that, it needs to be okay for carpet pythons. If you know it, and clearly bloods just don't fit into that category. So, okay. I found a bunch of other pythons and boas and colubrids that fit into what I can do and fit around carpet pythons. And I'm okay with that, but I'm not going to dip into, you know, I'm not going to dip into blood pythons. They just don't seem to like it. Sure. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be realistic about your capabilities with the resources you have at hand. And the more you do everything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's just, that's just life. But you know, the more you keep animals and the more you accumulate knowledge and experience and every reptile keeper has a closet full of like spare tubs and hot (laughs) water bowls and extra light bulbs (laughs) tape and everything over the time, you know, you get to a point where you can sort of dive into a new species, um, slightly underprepared, but still have the capability to bring yourself up to par because you have everything. Like, you know, I remember when I was first getting into it, we'd buy the snake at Hamburg and then I'd have to stop at target on the way home to buy the bin. Right. And the water bowl and everything else. And like, that's stupid. That's just a dumb way to do it. Now, I, here's the thing it, I have right here in my office where I'm recording this. I have a four level high 41 quart rack mm-hmm. and that is quarantine. So how many snakes can I bring into my collection at one time? Four. Correct. So <laughs> <laughs> that's it. So, yep. um, and that's what I got. Now I have a 32 quart sitting in the garage. I also have another 41 quart sitting in the garage and a four foot cage and sit in the garage because they just, I've accumulated them because people get out and they're like, do you want this? I'm like, yeah, all right. Like, and that's how it works. But you know, that's where it comes in with is that 
over time you get more confident and you learn things. So in it, as I started with, I started pretty much my first, my first Python was a carpet Python. Um, so that's my starting. So I'm most confident with carpet pythons. But as I've grown and as I've collected more species and started working with different things, I've grown confident in getting into other things. I would never have trusted myself with a reticulated python in the first <laughs> couple of years. I, I did, they scared the crap out of me. They got huge. Every single one I kept having interactions with was nasty as shit. And I didn't want to get into it. Yeah. And two out of the three that I have are nasty as shit. But I I can handle a retic now. Yeah. I say that, and then I'm feeding them rabbits, and I may not be able to handle them too. <laughs> but it's that maybe that's a sliding scale. But yeah. it like I I didn't think I should own white lips for a certain point because I didn't think I was prepared enough. I didn't think I was ready. Other people I knew had them, but they I I couldn't. They were they weren't carpet pythons, and I didn't feel comfortable with it. Now I'm pretty sure I can raise a white lip with my eyes closed. Yeah, something to be said for experience being the best teacher for sure. It is. You you, I mean, you have to get to a point where you have the experience because you've messed up. So if I tell you to do something or if I suggest for you to do something, it's not because I think, you know, I'm better or whatever. It's because I messed up. And I learned this from that. And I don't want you to do the same thing. So if I say that you shouldn't own a white lip after you've only been breeding for maybe carpets for maybe a year. And you have maybe five carpet pythons that you bought as adults and you got them to breed. And then your next thing is you want to go get a pair of black faced white lip. I'm going to tell you no. I don't think that's right. I don't think you should. I think you need to raise up your baby carpets that you're going to get now and you need to experience what that hell is like. And then you have to find a new hell to live in because that's the other part is that every baby season is some sort of new hell that you didn't think could get any worse or you didn't think this was going to happen, you know, and that's just the way it goes. You have to learn by falling down, by messing up, by having issues and then correcting them. Absolutely. You know, it, and also, you know, how many people do we know come into Morelia or other species? It, well, I'll even say like ball pythons or retics, because I'm pretty sure they have the same people. They come in and they are here and they buy a ton of animals and a ton of cages. And they're going to be so awesome and so successful. And they breed and they get the babies and they lose all their confidence because. You know, maybe one mother doesn't do well and she dies afterwards or the eggs crash or the babies hatch, but nine out of 10 aren't feeding and you're pulling your hair out. And, you know, then also you try, you finally get them all the eating and now they're not selling. And all you have to deal with are people who are putting you down and kicking the tires about prices and then they just get out of it, you know, and yeah, we've all seen seen people come and go in those waves, and you know yeah. whether, whether they mean well or not, it everybody's subject to the same sort of trajectory if you get in over your head. This hobby can be very, very stressful, and like I said, it's full of highs and lows. And you know, we we already talked about it. I had a I had a pretty good season this year, but I can tell you that I know what the low points are, and I focused on them. Like, and they were they were pretty low points. Um, but you got to be able to push past that and keep going. 
you know, and some people aren't going to be able to do that. And some people who maybe are not that into it or not that successful should be having some of these rarer species, but I can't stop you, but I'm just telling you that maybe you need some more experience. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. When you fail, you learn because oh, yeah. you, you failed at your execution in something or what you thought was right was going to succeed now didn't. Mm. And the old adage goes, nothing fails like success. And what that means is you get one taste of success. You think you've done it and you try and repeat it and you don't have success the next time around. And you're sitting there going, well, I did everything right. And it did it the same way I did last time. It worked before with, or it worked with this species. Why doesn't it work with this one? And now you have to go troubleshoot and figure out where you went wrong and you are learning along the way. And next thing you know, you come out the other side with a completely different understanding of the subtle differences between that snake and that snake. I, I think it was, I think you have to be, to be considered a, a, a successful breeder of a species. You have to be able to reproduce it. What was it two years in a row or three? Yeah. I, I think, I think people consider like at least twice as like the minimum you've got to be able to duplicate it. It's just like with science, everything, you know, if it's a, if it's a true like hypothesis and there's substance behind it, it's got to be replicable from other people. They have to be able to replicate it with the same parameters. And so right. same thing goes for you as a breeder. If you, if you breed a, a pair of animals, there's no saying whether or not you got lucky or there was some other variable to attribute the success to. What you've got to do is then do it again to show yourself and other people that you might be trying to prove that you're legit that you do know what you're doing. And sometimes right. it takes it takes more than that. I mean, especially with some of those more challenging species, we've seen people, you know, have one or two seasons of success with something like, oh, I don't know, like a Bolins or something. Uh, and then, you know, then they move and there's no more success. So, you know, or like it was just a one-off or they had that space dialed in because of whatever parameters that they weren't controlling just happened. Or to so, yeah, some bomb cyclone came over your house and messed up the barometric pressure at the exact right time that that animal needed to ovulate. It's like, right. yeah, there's tons of things. So, you know, it you have to repeat it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the, the best way to measure uh, how much influence your abilities contributed to success. Right. And the thing is, is that what I love is that when you see people who want to throw their hat in the ring of breeding of certain species after they've, they've never kept it, they've never worked with it. And they've only been breeding, let's say one species their entire career. Mm -hmm. I would say that's good. I love that effort. I love that, you know, passion about it but certain species need to be in the hands of the people who've been working with them and have the ability to reproduce them right you know it's like i really want to throw my hat in the ring of breeding bull and i well all right well what have you been keeping i have five corn snakes and i've bred them a ton of times no yeah. <laughs> it's like no no yes yeah. I, I i again i can't stop you and you know what that might be the person that figures it out but you know, I, I want people with more experience to have certain animals, but yeah, there needs to be more of a calculated approach. You, I, and I think, uh, I posted on it on Facebook and I elicited a, a ton of different responses. And some people were saying like, 
well, what's wrong with starting with one and working your way into multiple? And that's a, a very fair and valid question because, like you said, that person might be the one that figures there, it out. There is nothing wrong. And that's exactly how I said get one. Yeah. Get a female and then feel it out. Work with it. Because you know what? You might get that girl and then you might decide a year later, this thing sucks. Yep. And then you might want to bail. Yep. You know, it's it's slowly backing into it. It's just people are like, I'm going to get an adult pair and see what I can do. It's like, well, now that pairs with you instead of with somebody who's maybe got 20 different species and has success breeding them whose last name might be young. Yep. You know, it's yeah, like that. exactly. <laughs> yeah. See, that's where we start getting into uh, an almost a negative and deleterious effect to the longevity of the species because it looks so good in photos, i.e. white lips, a lot of people go out and buy white lips. I've been told, I, I've been told I need to stop mentioning them on NPR because um, that's why I can't find any. So, uh, Well, yeah. I, th I think you need to do the opposite. I think what you need to do is promote how special and important they are, but that they're not easy to breed. They're not for everyone. They're not easy to I, eat. And the more people who buy these one-offs take away from future success from yeah. people like Ryan, who are the folks who could potentially dial in a species I mean, where it's put it you know, now publicly available. I mean, let's put it this way. I think I had my first white lip in 2010 mm -hmm. and I've constantly been attempting to breed and had setbacks here and setbacks there. And I've maybe got one lock. Yeah. Well, and look at Scott Borden. He's kept them for 18 years, and he's obsessed with them. I mean, he's yep. he's, he's very knowledgeable, and he's committed to the species, but he hasn't necessarily produced any, and that's not to say he's not a good keeper and he doesn't know them well. No. It's just, that's how difficult the species is. And so now with COVID-19 potentially having future impacts on animal importation, other countries being a little more wary about this, it's sort of under the microscope a little bit. Now more than ever, is it more important for these rare, hard-to-produce species to end up in the right hands? And as well, I say this, as I say this, it's like, yeah, okay, there do need to be those people, the influx of new blood and folks, but we really should like try and make sure those get into the hands of the right keepers before you know. It could very easily off. become something. It could very easily become something like the Dunai, where they're just gone because. Yeah they just didn't happen and then they have to be re-imported. So, I mean, let's put it this way. If Ryan were to call me tomorrow and tell me he wants my blackface white lip, I'm sending him, you know, that's wow. Yeah. Oh that's, yeah. That's oh, yeah. serious I, though. But like, that's the perfect way to exemplify. I only have, is. like, here's the thing I got, I have a lone male. He's not doing any good here, yeah. you know, and I'm trying to track down a girl cause I want to give it a shot, but you know, no, <laughs> this is a guy who's consistently had success. Mm -hmm. Take him <laughs> like, you know, whatever, dude, go Yeah, send me some babies. Like I'm fine with that. So it's, I think it's just the way it would go. Yeah. For some of those rare, hard to breed species, we need to be more responsible as a community about the decisions made towards their longevity and existence. And that's just where I stand on that one. And, and I think uh, a lot of folks would agree. And it helps that when you get into it, you have to start working with species and you have to talk with the people who are also interested in them. Right. I mean, at this point, right now we're kind of overflowing with Madagascar hogs. Um, but I see that going the opposite direction quickly mm -hmm. if that were to shut down. 
Mm-hmm. So I have you and I have some other people who might be interested in them and things like that. But I'm trying to breed the blondes next year and I'm going to try to breed the speckleds next year as well. And we'll see how it goes. I don't think I want to do it like I did this year where I kind of almost treated them like a colubrid. Uh-huh. I kind of want to treat them like a python and just cool them down a little bit and then keep them together in a 41 quart filled mulch. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, we'll see I, how that goes. But if that happens, I'm just, I'm sending some to you. <laughs> like, I'm just going to do that because then yeah. that just keeps that thing rolling because say Madagascar does get shut down and say not a lot of people have success. Then there's only a, a couple breeders that actually have the projects that are continuing and that needs to keep going. Otherwise, the animals are lost to us here and it yeah. can happen quickly. Yeah, a bunch of individual animals scattered everywhere does no good to the the population as a whole. So with some of those lesser established species, I think a more long-term responsible approach by the community would, would do, do more good overall in the long term. And I, yeah, but my Instagram likes are not going to go up if I don't get this thing. <laughs> well, your Instagram likes aren't gonna, aren't going to get you the respect and what, what's the, um, What's the retic that's all black with a normal retic head? The uh, golden child? Yeah. Everybody just needs to go get a golden child. They have the same iridescence as a white lip, and it's a retic. Go do that. And I, if I'm not mistaken, golden child ha- uh, hails from uh, like a dwarf island locality, so they're not as big as a mainland. So if that's a deterrent, there you go. Oh, that'll help. Yeah, good. Yeah. There you go. Yep. Yeah, golden so, child retics. It's same thing. Everybody start talking about golden child retics. Yeah, that's all you want is just an Instagram rainbow snake, you know. Yeah. <laughs> just do go that. Hit up, go hit up Garrett Hartle. He's making yeah. miniature versions of them. And you'll there you go. It. Leave my white lips alone. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> We've got work to do, damn it. i got work to do over here. Get out of here. Yeah. yeah exactly. So. And then before I get into closing questions, the last thing i got to ask you. Hmm. How's Mort? <laughs> um, I, I saw him when I was in Florida, uh, which is the first time I met Mort, um, the, the tortoise that my fiance adopted behind my back. Um, but, uh, so when I was down there in Florida, I got to see him. Um, and, uh, it was one of those like, kind of like, he didn't want to have anything to do with me or her. He was having fun wandering around his enclosure and then we showed him the the red leaf lettuce that we had, and then uh-huh. we had his undivided attention. Um, but he's weird because uh, he's unlike any other tortoise I've ever known, where he does not suck his head in when you pet him. Nope. Um, like he'll just sit there and chill. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. Yeah. Um, he's a big boy already, but I'm like, all right, well, it's nice. And then uh, Melissa and I, when I was down there, we went to Gatorland um, in Orlando just to kind of kill some time and to pretend to like, like they're like, Oh, you ever handled an alligator, sir? I'm like, never. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. A pastel ball Python. Like that, that was the animal they were using for pictures. And they had a bunch of albino labyrinth berms as their like Burmese enclosure. And I'm like, come on, dude, that's guys, weird. that's just silly. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, so anyway, with the, uh, uh, went to, um, you know, we did the whole Gatorland thing, and uh, they have a sulcata there, and it's a full-grown 
male. And I'm like, you've doomed us. Look at this thing. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm like, that thing is effing huge. And she's like, I didn't know they got that big. I'm like, that's almost something you should have researched before you did this. And I'm like, I, listen, I have three full rooms that could accommodate. I, I can accommodate a snake of any size. <laughs> you, you did this to us. And yeah, so it was, it was, it was funny. But he's a he was a fun tortoise. I mean, tortoises. Are, I don't know what to do with a tortoise. <laughs> like, I don't want to. People are like, are oh, you going to get an old and breed it? No, I don't want because I don't want to contribute to people buying a forty five dollar baby sulcata and then realizing how big they get or what damage they can cause. Oh yeah, no. I've watched females push out clutches of forty plus eggs. So yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that they're not. The weird thing about tortoises is that if they're huge and rare. They're expensive as shit, like Aldabras, Galops, and things like that. And then also tortoises, if they're small and manageable, they're expensive as shit. Leopards, Russians, um, any stars. of the species. Yeah. yeah. Pancakes. I love yep. pancakes. Oh, so, um, but sulcatas are in that weird middle ground where I can't afford a leopard and I can't accommodate an Aldabra, so I'm going to try for a sulcata. <laughs> and they literally are $45 a baby. Yeah. And it's like, no, and, yeah. yeah, no. So that is her emotional support tortoise and it will never be bred. It it's just a damn walking coffee table. Okay. There like you go. that's it. So, you know, you know what you've got to do now is, uh, mm. is target train it to, to see a target, walk a straight line all the way for that target, you know, which could just be a carrot or whatever right. food item, teach him to maintain his focus, get that duration going. So that by the time your wedding rolls around, you can have more <laughs> walk down the aisle with the pillow. And I, I, I refuse. And we'll, maybe we'll take pictures with him, but that's it. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is that like, you know, uh, while I'm talking about like we have to fence in the back of my yard for him mm-hmm. and we have to get all that stuff going. And then I want to get there's this thing you can get for dogs. You can hook up to the collar that sends you a text alert when they've broken the fence line. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I'm going to epoxy that to his shell. Yeah. So this way, if he breaks my fence line, I know that I have a tortoise on the loose and I have to go get it. So That's brilliant. That's a really yeah. good idea. Yeah, I'm not not about to mess around with this crap. So Yeah, we, uh, we have three of them at work. And one of the females, who's she's only like 23 years old. So she's like 50 pounds. She's not that big. Mm-hmm. Um she spends her days uh, sort of inspecting the perimeter of her yard and exploiting any weaknesses to the point where we found her in the giraffe yard running around like <laughs> just because she sees the really tasty grass over there that she can't get to. Oh, yeah. She, I mean, she's, she's ripping apart a boulder wall, like 50 pound boulders coming cracking down. And she's just like, no, I'm cruising. I'm going to get that. And I'm determined. Yeah, nope. and I've got all day to do it. <laughs> exactly. No, it. I, we had the. When we used to do the zoo, we used to do uh, uh, out, out outdoor programs and stuff like that. And I think at one point somebody posted like a bunch of baby gates, like a, like a playpen area. And we put our mm-hmm. sulcata in there and he was fine. He was just chewing down on grass. But then he saw a dandelion, like just at a, he dragged the entire thing, yep. like the whole th- with him yep. to the, where that dandelion was and then just sat down ate the dandelion and then was like, well, I guess I'm here now and just started cruising around there. It's like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. No, they're, they're bulldozers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yep. they, and they just poop indiscriminately. So if you have a concrete back patio or anything, get a, get a scraper. Cause you're going to need, yeah. you're just gonna, 
he's going to do drive by dukes on you. Yeah, that's the the idea is that we are going to board put boards all around my concrete patio. This way, he can go there when we leave. This way, he's not just roaming around the yard unattended. And then when I'm when we're home, he can just roam around the yard. And then uh, in the winter time, he's going to have to go into the shed. So yeah. Nah, he'll be he'll be good. Uh, you'll you'll get a good system dialed in, and you'll realize you've just got a reptile dog cow thing in the backyard. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. They're like cows. They just graze. I know they just graze and shit and wander. Yeah, so yeah, gotta exactly. keep them inside. So, but you can do some cool training with them. Uh, you know, you can train them to uh, hold their head out and take uh, you know blood, voluntary blood draws on the neck. You can train them to walk on scales for weights. Uh, that's, that's that's healthcare. That's all her. That's yeah. all on her. I'm Perfect. just I'm just in it for taking him to like my nephew's party and just dropping him into their, my brother's yard and being like, I brought the entertainment. Like, yeah, no. Perfect. So, yeah. Yeah. That's very smart. You see, you've got it all figured out. Yeah. Just let this tank creature just wander around your yard. Yeah. Yeah. That's all you need. Just, you know, be prepared to replace whatever he breaks and grinds holes in. I dude, he got caught. Uh, she brought him inside cause there's some heavy storms mm-hmm. and he got caught on a metal coffee table and he was dragging <laughs> that around. Apparently. <laughs> And she and she had to free him from this metal coffee table that he jammed himself into. And I'm like, great, great, good, it's good. So, yep, yeah. And well, you know what you can do for Halloween is you can build a little cardboard box that you just put right over him and actually like paint it and sculpt it to make it look like a tank and put a gun on it and, and walk then around. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fine. Let's put him in the front yard. Yeah, there put him go. in the front yard, and I'll tape the bullet candy to him, and he can wander around. He's already. Oh. He's already been assigned cameraman at the Northeast Carpet Fest. We're just going to strap a GoPro to his back and let him wander. Perfect. So, I've done that yeah. before. You'll get great footage. I did it with a radiated tortoise in Santa Barbara. It was awesome. There you go. So yeah, a day of the life. So, all right. So let's move on to the juicy closing questions that uh, our guests have to endure um, for their first time on here, given we're new, we haven't had anybody double up. So everybody's doing this now. Everybody's subject to this. Go ahead. So first one is who do you look up to most in the reptile world? Eric Burke. He's dreamy. (laughs) Fair enough. Actually, if we're really going to be honest, um, when I grow up, I want to be Ryan young. So yeah, that's actually yeah, that's a really good one. No, if I, could have, if I could have all those species underneath my belt and just, yeah, no, that. So, yeah, listening to uh, to him talk about his experiences is is fascinating, and you very quickly learn how good he is at what he does. But that's the problem. It's like you know, it, 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 I'm thinking about it now. I'm like, well, I don't know. Ari gets to go on the mountains in New Guinea and check out Bull and I. I can yeah. hang out with him. Like Gavin Bedford went buy a helicopter to find Owen Pelly pythons to establish that breeding project. It's like, yeah, so I can't pick one. So we'll just say them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's impossible to pick one. Cause as soon as you start talking about things, it starts triggering other memories of other previous herpetologists or groundbreaking folks. And yeah, yeah. There's, there's too many wonderful, brilliant people out there. Yeah. Number two, what is your Holy grail reptile to keep? Oh, and Pelly Python. How did I not see that coming? Mm. <laughs> I'm sleeping. Sleeping is why. Gotta... I mean, like, you know, well, I mean, like, it, it, because nobody's asked me yet. Yeah. Because I, I have my white whale. I've had ruffies and stuff like that. They're my, I love my ruffies. But nobody's asked me what I 
want to keep that I haven't gotten yet? Yeah. Like what's my Holy grail. And, and to be honest, it was finding the OP in the wild was awesome. But speaking with Gavin and talking to him about all the shit that he's had to do (laughs) to get the OPs and to breed the OPs and then having him put one in my hand, I was done. I was sold. I mean, I can be, I can be 90 and they can hit these shores and I will buy a pair. I don't care. <laughs> like it's, uh, yeah. it's going to happen one day. Yeah. That's so. a pretty, pretty profound experience. I can see why that would definitely leave such a, a lasting impression for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the right, right now they're, they're my, they're my Holy grail at this moment. So, uh, one day. Yep. Very cool. I support that. If you could devote an entire bedroom to one species to build a massive vivarium, what would you keep and how would you design it? Mertens. Ooh. Okay. Mertens. Um, Because, I mean, I'm not talking like, obviously the snake room stays the snake room and other shit like that. But if I could dive, uh, if I was going to do a bedroom, it would have to be to a certain species that I feel would need a bedroom. So Mertens monitors. So Obviously, I would design it with ledges, trees, but they would have a huge water fixture where I can see them both under the water and, um, you know, above the water. Um, the obviously it would be able to drain easily and clean easily. Um, but yeah, it'd be Merton's monitors because they're just they're a really cool animal, and I love it because they're really like dirt animals in Australia. <laughs> like it's like Ruffies and Mertens are like, oh, everybody's got those. Like, who cares? Like, I care but in, in Australia. But uh, over here, I think they'd be definitely cool. Um, and that was the other thing is that, you know, we saw them in Australia and watching them move and walk and uh, swim in the water. It was just cool. So, yeah, yeah I'd say Mertens if I was going to devote a room. Yeah, those are cool animals. You could totally do, like, a, a really awesome waterfall, some rock work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, that's the thing is, the weird thing is that they were, they're all up on the beaches and chilling, but they always had their heads pointed to the water in case they had to beeline into it. And uh, yeah, they were just awesome. Ah, that's really cool. What an experience. Number four, if you could go back in time to a younger version of yourself right before you got into reptiles, what wisdom would you impart upon your younger self? diamonds are not something to fear that they're actually pretty easy if you do it right. So, cause that's that, what I always think is Asian was, rattlesnakes and diamonds were always right. something that you could not keep because they needed this, that, and the other thing. And they die at the age of four, blah, 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 blah. But just keep them the correct way. And they're fine. Was that during the time when diamond Python syndrome was still regarded yes. as a thing? Yes. I mean, I, I, I started in 2004 so it was the tail end of that kind of stuff, but it was still very much in there. And diamonds were like 15, 16 a piece. Um, and uh, everybody was talking about, oh, they can't do this. They can't do that. And it's one of those things where, um, yeah, if you just do it correctly, they actually are very, very hardy. And also, you know, I, a lot of the guys that I talked to that do nothing but diamonds, they have it really easy because they just turn off everything and fall. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem to be actually a bit easier when you really get down into the the nuts and bolts of what climate they need and and how it's even less than some of the other species and subspecies. So management actually, although it is different, it, it is less um, 
less focus on the heat and more just letting things, you know, do both heat and cool uh, each day. Yep. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a really good one. That's uh, another example of learning from your animals. All right. Number five, if you could pass on one piece of advice to the listeners about keeping snakes or reptiles, what would it be? Keep what you love, regardless of what anybody says. So if you love a species, devote your time and collection to it and keep it and really get into it. I mean, one of the things that I had, and I think I've told the story a million times on NPR is that when I first started, I set up uh, a table next to a guy who had bearded dragons and I had my little ugly gray carpet pythons. And he told me, he said, you're not going to sell anything with those. He goes, trust me, I'd love emerald tree boas and Amazon tree boas, and I'll never sell anything of those. That's why I got to do these bearded dragons. And then I think a couple of years later, uh, through a friend of mine, he's like, Hey, some guy I know is selling a bunch of racks. And it turned out to be that guy who was selling all the bearded dragon stuff. And he was just getting out of it because he was frustrated as hell. So keep what you love, because if you do it correctly and do it right and are really passionate about it, the customers and the market will appear. So think about that guy. If he had devoted his collection to Amazons and emeralds and things like that, I mean, people love those things. I see people buying those things all the damn time. Oh yeah. It's just that he didn't want to take the time, the effort and things like that. So if you love a species, devote your collection to it, be passionate about it and breathe the hell out of it and have fun with it. Because the second it's not fun, then you're just punishing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. If you're just chasing the trends and the fads and you're just trying to stay relevant, you're going to burn out. Yeah. You're never yeah. going to focus on yourself. You're just going to always be chasing the rat race. Right. And trust me, I've been there. You know, I, I was mainly a coastal person and then I got into jungles because I was offered a zebra and I'm like, oh man, I have to get into that. And then I got into Darwin's cause I was offered albino. It's like, oh man, I got to get into that. And now I'm sitting here and I'm like, I just want to get back to coastals. <laughs> like, it's like, you just got to do it. And I've had success with jungles and I have a successful jungle project, but you know, I don't, Part of me is like, if I didn't have, if I had more cage space, I could get the Rockhamptons that I want, or I could get the Port Douglas that I want, but like, I got to clear some space out first. So it's really just one of those things where if you're passionate about it, be passionate about it. Absolutely. Speaking of Rockhamptons, I do believe mm -hmm. Travis just hatched some out. Oh, he and I have been in conversation. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Travis and I are talking, don't you worry. It's uh it's again, it's one of those things of like I need to it, it's weird because like I need to get these babies that are here big enough, get them sold, then I need to get the money so then I can buy the Rockhamptons and then I have to clear out some space for the Rockhamptons when they get older. So uh but yeah, hopefully soon I can get um all the localities at coastal. Just build uh, another room onto your house. Just add it on there, and that'll be your coastal room. Well, the idea is that if I get them tiny, I can take a couple years growing them up. It'll it'll take four years to get everybody ready, and then by then I might be into a different situation. Yeah, and a no, larger build uh, snake building. The next next step is a snake building. Yeah, throw a slab of concrete down or something in the back. Put up a 
pop up a building. Yeah. 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 They, uh, there's companies now that make really good, affordable pop up like steel sheds that you can then add insulation in. So if if you've got the foundation, you throw that sucker up, you're good. Those prefab buildings that come like those prefab Mm -hmm. garages, like, Oh yeah, I've Mm -hmm. been looking at those. All I have to do is throw up insulation and drywall done. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That'd be uh, that'd be the way to do it, and then you can really dial things in, and then then you have your your three rooms in in your place for you know maybe one or two things, an incubator room, some nice displays for the larger animals, some you know some show pieces, and then you have the uh, the factory, so to speak, the farm and the building in the back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be sweet, man. That's the dream. I think a lot of us uh, all sort of want to push for that one day. So I'm right there with you. Well, we're closing in on two hours. Um, is there anything you wanted to throw out there? Uh, contact information, any cool, exciting babies, projects, things that people need to be uh, watching out for, staying tuned to, uh, to our stuff going on? Yeah, I guess the uh, you can go to rogue-reptiles.com. You can also look it up at rogue underscore reptiles on Instagram. As far as babies coming along, uh, jungles will be up soon. Uh, after that, I got a bunch of caramel coastal jags, tigers, things like that coming up. Um, we'll see. I haven't decided which ones I'm holding back on those ones. So y'all might have to wait. (laughs) Um, and then, uh, obviously rhinos, olives, corn snakes, things like that later on. So we'll let everybody know once they're available. Um, as far as exciting things, uh, NPR is, uh, every Tuesday at nine is when Eric puts out the episode and actually have to record one later today. So, um, oh no, wait, I'm sorry. That's tomorrow. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be sitting here waiting for Eric. But where is he? No, it's yeah, not here. So, um, but yeah, so we got to do that. Uh, and then, um, hopefully we get some stuff nailed down. Uh, we're not going to have carpet fest in 2020, uh, but we're going to try to get as much information as we can out for carpet fest 2021 as soon as possible. So go from there. Yeah. There's so much unknown right now. It's hard to say, but we will cross our fingers and hope for, uh, hope for the return of carpet fest next year. Yeah. I mean, at this point people are like, you could still have it. I'm like, yeah, we all wanted to wear masks and stay six feet away from each other. Sure. We'll totally <laughs> have it. But, um, we're, we're probably going to just kind of hunker down on the, um, plus also it's like we would be limited to how many people we could have right and where do we draw the line and who would feel insulted if we didn't let them come and blah 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 blah, blah. so yeah no um carpet fest will, will be canceled in 2020 but we're going to come back for 2021 um and yeah we'll just go from there stronger better faster damn right <laughs> like, like i said we're just gonna we're gonna party so hard we're gonna burn eric's house to the ground so and and mort will be there taking out all the foundation. Hopefully he will. Yeah. Yeah. In. He will, he will be there and he will be meandering. You better not be getting in the pool. So he's going to be yeah. going around breaking ankles and breaking hearts. Yeah. I mean, he'll just be chewing on grass. <laughs> it's fine. Oh man. I love big tortoises. That's, that's hilarious. He's got such yeah. a good story too. <laughs> yeah. I just, uh, it, you know, it's like, and then the problem is, is that she, she, um, was it she rescued a cat that like they had to have the leg removed because somebody shot at it. So I'm like, listen, no more cats. And then she rescues Mort and I'm like, touche. So (laughs) this was, this was my fault. I should have been more specific. 
no more breathing animals. It's like yeah. just yeah. Oh man. Actually, well, it was the I said I said we can accommodate any snake, and then she said someone just came in with a ball python. I'm like, never mind. I rescinded that. Yep. No. Yeah. Burn it. Burn it with yep. fire. Nope. So. Dang. Well, at least she's a big fan of the animals. You got yourself a keeper there, no doubt. She was the person who got me my first carpet python. So there you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, she is. She's an important lady to, uh, to everyone her, yeah. in the Morelia world. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, uh, she's like the the founding father's founder. She's <laughs> like my, my drug dealer. Yeah, she's gonna be the first taste. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, man. Well, we're gonna close on out of here. Um, I'm gonna just, you know, wind up this this whole deal. Don't close your your window yet. It'll, it'll gotcha. have to process the audio afterwards. But uh, I'm gonna say thank you for spending time with me today. I know you always record a ton, and you're super busy doing NPR every week, and you guys are just going on, you know, strong, close to ten years now. So um, to pull you away from that and everything else that's going on, even though. I know it's COVID time, so everything's wacky. I do appreciate mm-hmm. um, spending the time here, and I know our, our listeners will enjoy this one for sure. So for everybody out there who's been itching to understand how certain people approach keeping such a diverse collection of animals, this episode is going to be quite valuable to those folks. So I, uh, I think this is a good one. And for me, you can uh, you can get a hold of me at Riley's Reptiles, Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. You can find the podcast, Reptile Room Podcast, on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and all of your uh, preferred podcasting platforms. It should be available out there. So um, don't forget to, to subscribe and show some love to all the other reptile podcasts out there, especially Morelia Python Radio. And... Uh, you know just keep doing what you do out there and thanks for joining us today in the reptile room and we will catch you all next time